We're just going to have a message, cover some topical messages for a while as we transition away from the series we've been having pertaining to Daniel. So today we're going to be in James chapter 5. And as you turn into James chapter 5, you know, you have turned there and you can do so. But I'm going to ask you a question as you're preparing to turn to James chapter 5 before a reading. The question is this. Would you describe yourself, this is you describing yourself, as a patient person? But the other thing to consider with that, then, is the follow-up question right along with that is, would the person that is closest to you, perhaps your spouse, best friend, whatever, would they describe you as a patient person? Because you might think of yourself as a patient person, but the person closest to you would say, dude, lady, girl, you're not patient at all. And this topic kind of came up this week. As I mentioned, Kayla and I have been on a... a eight-day or nine-day, eight-race trip for quite some time. And, you know, when you spend some time with someone you're not used to spend the time with, it does a little bit at times test your patience a little bit. I mean, not that she had couldn't be patient with me, right? But that I had the time to be patient with her. But she's shaking her head no. But let me tell you, it comes up when we're driving. Okay, let me kind of preface the story by telling you, Kayla does most of the driving, okay? So as we're driving from one track to the other in traffic, there's times I recognize she's not the most patient person when she's driving. She gets very impatient with other drivers. And one time she actually said, Goodness, they will be glad dad's with you right now because I'd let them know something. So I, I was thinking about patience during the week and Okay, let me also tell you this part of the story. When Kayla wasn't driving, I meant I had to drive. Okay, and I didn't drive a lot, but admittedly, I'm not also the most patient person when it comes to driving. You might ask Sheila that. She might give you an amen, all right, because she understands I sometimes have a little impatience when I'm driving. It happens more on the school bus than it does really in the car, where I get impatient with other people driving. But anyway, the topic of patience came up during the week, and that's kind of how it surfaced. But the question and the thought then of patience made me begin to wonder, well, how, how can we define patience? And so I looked up dictionary.com. It may not be the best source, but here's how the online dictionary defines patience. It says, first of all, the quality of being patient, which is a stupid uh, uh, definition. I mean, what's that really mean? Then it goes on and says, as the bearing of provocation, annoyance, misfortune, or pain, without complaint, loss of temper, irritation, or the like. Okay, I like number two better. Patience can be an ability or willingness to suppress restlessness or annoyance when confronted with delay, i.e. driving in traffic because you are delayed at times. But those are good workable definitions of patience, and perhaps we could use those, but there's one I like better, which is this. Patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. I like that definition of patience. And I look at that definition then, and I see that in life in general, in general terms, in society today, many people seem to lack such capacity to accept or tolerate delay and trouble and suffering without getting angry upset because it seems most people quickly get upset and get angry and do not practice any patience. 
So this is, to me, the definition that maybe applies to a lot of us because we do quickly get upset or angry. So it may this morning be someone you know that may need help of patience or maybe yourself, but it gave us a message today in James chapter 5 to consider about patience. Now, I must also say that it's been said before you should never pray for patience, and I got thinking about that. Well, is that really... I mean, should we not pray for patience? Is there some biblical reason or mandate to not pray for patience? So we'll talk about that a little bit as well today as we look what James has to offer regarding patience in his fifth chapter in his book. So same with me this morning as we do to be able to read the word of God. It is in chapter five of James. You may have already turned there. If not, you just follow along as we do our reading. The verses will also be behind me on the screen. James chapter five, start in verse seven. He says this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Thanks to prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heart of, heart heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But of all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you do not fall under in condemnation. All right, Father, we thank you, Lord. This morning for this reading of the word, we pray, Lord, as we consider the word given to us today with the text we're about to uncover, Lord, and apply to our lives, that you help us, Lord, receive the message. And perhaps, Lord, even if we leave here today, just might you have a little more patience. We're not praying necessarily for patience, Lord, we're just asking you to help us in a matter of patience. So lead and guide and direct us today, Lord, and let your word be proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, as I mentioned and somewhat confessed, patience is a topic that most of us struggle with. And maybe as we now begin to think about patience, you know, maybe maybe our society and culture has at least some small part into maybe why we are not very patient people at times. Because when you really begin to look at how we live life now, I mean, we or in a, a, a fast food, microwave, fast-acting, pain relief, drive-through, FedEx, internet access immediately, email culture. I mean, we have all these things basically at our fingertips, and we've now been trained to demand the things we want and expect them to be delivered immediately. I mean, so how, how incredible our society is impatient. We see this every day, and many of us are guilty of also having a lot of impatience in the world we're living. But James then, as we consider his word, he counters our society and culture by mentioning now the importance of patience. In fact, if you go back and read the entire letter of James later, you're going to find he talked about patience even early. And we, we jumped into the fifth chapter, but he even refers to it early in the letter, in fact, in the first chapter, look with me in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, 
when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You're, you're hearing that or reading it with me. You said, okay, it doesn't say anything about patience in that. I mean, now, noticeably, the word steadfastness is used here rather than patience. But I ask you, is not steadfastness remaining and maybe patience synonyms? Because I tend to think that they are. In fact, the King James would actually agree. If you consider the King James Version rather than our English Standard Version, you find the word patience is used. In verse 3, it says, The trying of your faith work of patience. In verse 4, but let your patience have perfect work. So it seems to be, at least according to the King James, that patience and steadfastness are related. And James then talks early in his letter about patience. In fact, he mentions it twice within the first four verses in the beginning in chapter 1. So we ask, well, what does that mean then, if anything? And that should mean for us then that, well, he points to how and emphasizes how we should have patience, both having it and then exercising it. He talks about it early in his letter. He brings it up towards the end again. It's kind of bookends in his letter. So we'd ask ourselves, well, then why does James now take this opportunity to write about having and exercising patience? Which is a good question, really, to now want to understand the text. And the short answer of why he discusses patience in his letter is that his original audience of Jewish brothers and sisters were suffering. In the midst of the suffering, for any of us, we can grow impatient. I mean, who wants to be suffering forever? It grows impatient and frustrated after a while, and you get angry and upset. So he's talking, he's writing to his original audience who's in the midst of having some suffering. That's the short answer. Now, the longer answer to explain a little bit is that these Jewish brothers and sisters of his, well, they've kind of left the Orthodox Judaism practices. And so they're receiving some persecution and some suffering from well, their friends or colleagues and so forth. I mean, they've left their traditions and the practices and the rituals and all the beliefs of Judaism. That's one particular way of suffering, but they're also suffering from those people who are loyal and peerless to the Roman Empire. So as a result, then, these people, believers, if you will, brothers and sisters of James, who's writing a letter to, they were being ridiculed and mocked and oppressed by the Roman government. Christians, followers of the way, were viewed as weak, insignificant, completely meaningless, and poor. And remarkably, James then writes that they were suffering from the rich. doesn't say that in the text, doesn't say that in the beginning, but in chapter 5 at the beginning, he refers to this. Look with me here in James chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And the corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. 
You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now in those six verses at the beginning of James, you may look at that and say, well, that's not so obvious that they're being oppressed by the rich. But it's exactly what's happened. The Christians, believers, those insignificant, meaningless people are being oppressed by those who have wealth. And the text James now tries to not only paint a picture of the extent of the rich taking advantage or oppressing the poor, but also at the same time warns the rich then in these verses of their day of reckoning. The message by Eugene Peterson may provide a little clarity. He words it a little differently. He says, a final word, a final word is given to now you, you arrogant rich. Take some lessons and lament. You'll need buckets for your tears when the crash comes upon you. Your money is corrupt and your fine clothes stink. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling up wealth. What you build up to is judgment. You know, basically, here James is calling out the wicked or the actions of the rich and telling them the day of judgment is forthcoming. But while what we find here that James's message is to the rich, he also then at the same time leads into the next segment we've read earlier, where he has a message for not only for the rich to recognize a day of reckoning is coming for oppressing the believers, he has an equal message, importantly, to the believers, and he tells them simply in verse 7 to be patient. I know you're under oppression. I know what's happening to you, but I need you to know as Christians, brothers and sisters, you need to be patient. He says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. That's what he tells them. In the midst of having difficulties, hardships, oppressed, for whatever reason, by whoever, he tells them to be patient. Two simple words. Be patient. Of course, he adds, until the coming of the Lord. But look further in verse 7 because he says, be patient, therefore. I mean, he recognizes truly that a way of life is difficult for his brothers and sisters. He, he knows that the current time was happening. And he knows a pattern of abuse is being inflicted upon them. And he says, basically, in light of all this is happening to you right now, the abuse, whatever, just be patient. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. It is important to note that James is speaking to believers at this particular segment of the letter and instructing them to be patient. I'm being redundant, let me say it once more. He tells the oppressed, persecuted believers to be patient until the coming of the Lord, which is very specific instruction and is equally highly significant. Go back to verses 7 through 9. Three times James is telling the people to be patient for the coming of the Lord. In verse 7, in verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. And more a bit differently, verse 9, he refers to the judge standing at the door. Also, the time is imminent, coming short and soon for the coming of the Lord. So in short, he's telling his brothers and sisters to remain faithful, endure the oppression for the current time because the coming of the Lord is near. The coming of the Lord is near. Be patient. In recent weeks, in our series of Daniel, we have mentioned numerous times the coming of the Lord. 
This is not new for us to hear this. We've mentioned it several different times over the last several weeks. We emphasize that a future day, an unknown day and time will come when the Lord will call up his church. It's referred to and called the rapture. Our series on Daniel reminded us that even through the dark days, the Lord is in control. Further, this series reminded us that with the ugliness and the evil and the wicked things we see every day in this world continue to unfold before our very eyes, we uh, should be prepared for the inevitable return of Jesus. Which all that means, that if you spell it out and make it real simple, it means we must continue to be faithful in everything that happens in our lives. We must continue to be faithful. And in the midst of all the oppression that they were receiving at that particular time, or the Christian brothers and sisters like all of us today receive oppression, be mocked, ridiculed, we must be patient. It's a simple message. Verse 7, be patient. In the midst of anything happening, oppression, be patient. Because the coming of the Lord is near. Which then all that means, a theme emerges in this particular section of the book of James that we can apply to our lives. Because the key is simple. Real faith results in genuine patience. Real faith in our lives, practiced every day, results in genuine patience. It almost sounds too simple. Just exercise your faith, be faithful, to be patient. You're saying, okay, I hear you. But the question really is, how can I remain faithful and patient when the all world all around me is doing anything? There's no one around me I know besides the people at church who can be faithful and patient. I mean, the world never is. All those people around me in school, workplace, wherever, they're not patient. They're not faithful. So how can I be faithful and patient when the world seems not to be? That's a great question. And I answer that question with a scripture that seems to be the favorite of many, which is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What a great verse. I mean, that's a promise that God gives to his people. That we can endure all things through his strength. It reminds us that we're not alone, that God is with you. He's fighting. He's giving you strength. And he's even giving you some patience to endure things. It's a great promise we receive from God. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. One of the promises given to us. You know, the prophet Isaiah was very instrumental in delivering God's word to his people. In fact, not only was Isaiah effective in delivery of God's word, but equally impressive in that the people seem to be impacted. At least if you measure impactness by the fact that when they found the copies of Isaiah in, in the case of Qumran, there's more copies of Isaiah than any other scripture. So it seemed to be very impactful. But the one of the most impactful passages, perhaps, arguably, of Isaiah is chapter 49. In which it is noted that hope and comfort is given to people by one of God's promises. Look with me in Isaiah 49, verse 13. It says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and with compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget 
yet I will not forget you. This particular passage in Isaiah chapter 49 has helped many people who feel discouraged. I mean, everyone at some particular juncture or time in life can have some discouragement, frustration, some aggravation. And in many cases, though, for many people, discouragement leads into depression. In fact, over 3 million people suffer from depression annually. And while it takes at times professional help and counseling to address depression, it also helps reflect upon God's word and his promises. In Isaiah chapter 49, we find one of those great promises. God's promise of his everlasting unconditional love will be forever. In verse 6, verse 15, it says, I will not forget you. You may go through all of life. You may make many friends, co-workers that come and go. You may know them for a while. You may not know them later. You may forget who they were. I'm old. I'm 60. I forget people all the time. But God never forgets you. It's one of his great promises he gives to us. I will not forget you. So you say, okay, I hear that, but how's that, I mean, how's that relate to James? That's a good question as well. Because here, we, we look at the promise given to us through God's word in Isaiah, but here we return back to James. We note he, James provides another one of the great promises of God. The coming of the Lord. You can take that to the bank. The coming of the Lord shall happen. And James then says three times. Again, it was verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9. You go back to verses 7 through 9. Three times he talks about the promise of the coming of the Lord. And of how we know this and expect this, that we can exercise patience by our faith. Chuck Swindoll states that while the persecutors of the Christians should fear Christ's coming, believers anticipate that through patiently enduring suffering. So what does that mean for you and for me and for every follower of the Lord? It simply means a quick application. And it's simple. That we must patiently endure hardships and heartaches until Jesus returns. Let me say it again. What that means in the lives that we live is that yes, we must patiently endure hardships and heartaches until the Lord Jesus returns. We may not like it, but that's the way it is. We've got to patiently endure heartaches because every day can be a new challenge, a new heartache, or hardship can be introduced to us every day. Every day has its own difficulty. But nonetheless, we are expected to practice and exercise patience. So James kind of spells it out and kind of helps us in the area of having better patience or more patience. And then just kind of spell it out. He kind of now provides three illustrations or three examples, if you will, of how people have patience and how they can be like them. And he actually introduces to the farmer, the prophets, and to Job. Let us look at each of them. First is the farmer. In verses 7 through 9, he's referring to the farmer exercising patience and how maybe we can be like the farmer. I mean, the immediate application here is that if a man or woman is impatient, then he better not become a farmer. I mean, think about it. The farmer exercises a tremendous amount of patience. 
and trust. There are multiple variables when it comes to farming or even gardening. I know a lot of us like to be able to grow our own fruit and vegetables and like to garden. It's the same type of thing. I mean, no crop, no fruit, no vegetable produces itself overnight, except for maybe a crop of weeds, which you can't stand. And, and no farmer then equally or gardener has control over the weather. I mean, too much rain can cause the crop to rot, or too much sun and heat can cause it to burn up, and the early frost can kill the crop. She and I have been gardening now for quite some time. We lived in Texas for 12 years. As many of you may know, weather, of course, there's quite a bit different than it is in Indiana. So we would try to get an early jump on, you know, planting some tomatoes, and sometimes with the weather's warm in Texas, you can actually start in February, early March, planting some things in your garden. So we, the tomato plants would be available. We would even grow our own. And we would put them then in the garden. But we were quickly reminded a few different times of how we should have been more patient because suddenly, unexpectedly, there'd be a frost. And we'd kill tomato plants. So kind of we thought, well, next year we need to maybe wait a little bit longer. Don't get in a rush. and Be more patient. It's the same principle here for us. I mean, note then the illustration the farmer tells us that through many variables in life, we're going to be introduced to all kinds of different things, and with the hardship, we need to actually practice patience. But also note here that the illustration the farmer has the usage of patience as being long in patience, as in suffering with long patience. How long-suffering the farmer must be with like the weather. Notice also how the farmer must have patience with the seed and the crop. For it takes time for plants to grow. Again, it doesn't happen overnight. When you garden very long, you kind of tend to know the expected time of harvest. You know when you can plant something, and you know how long it's going to take before you can start getting some results from the stuff you planted. Very similarly, farmers also know when the harvest shall occur. They've been planting stuff in the spring, now in the midst of the summer, they know in a few months, you'll see many farmers out in the fields, late at night, harvesting the crop, the corn and the beans, whatever. But right now, with extreme hot weather, they have no option but to exercise some patience. That's what it is for us as we live in the Midwest. But we need to know what is different for the Jewish people that James is talking to, that he's writing to. For his original audience, farming relatively the same. Jewish farmers would plow and sow in what, for us, is the autumn months. The early rain would actually soften the soil. The later rain would come in the early spring and help them mature the harvest. But the farmer had to wait many weeks for seed to produce the fruit and the crop. But as we live in the Midwest and understand this, we need to dig deeper. Because it's not just actually farming that he's talking to here. He's also got a point he's trying to make. In, in verse 8, he, he, he says, you also then, he talks about the farmer, you also be patient. It's like he's going to tell us something that we need to hear. The farmer is being patient, yeah, but you also be patient. And also establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So we need to open our minds now to connect that James is picturing the Christian. That's you and me. He's picturing us in our lives as Christians, as believers, as spiritual farmers, expecting a spiritual harvest. Where he says, you also need to be patient. 
and establish your hearts. Now, it's important that he says establish your hearts. Because our hearts, as Christians and believers, this is the soil. And the seed, then, is the Word of God. And there are seasons, then, to the spiritual life, like there are seasons of the soil. So sometimes our hearts, then, if we're honest, will become cold and wintry. And the Lord, then, has to plow up the heart to actually plant the seed. I mean, the seed's planted, but he has to kind of stir it up at times. Because of, we get guilty of also being cold or hard-hearted. Then he also then, as he plows the field, our heart, he, he sends the sunshine and the rains of his goodness, which is the blessings, his grace and mercy, to water and mature the seeds he planted. But ultimately, we must wait for the harvest. Just like the farmer. So he actually has a subliminal message involved in here of how our hearts are the soil and how it needs to be prepared. It was interesting as before James goes to his next example, he adds verse 9, which says, Do not grumble against one another, brother. So you may not be judged. Behold, the judge stands at the door. I like the King James once more better here, where it says, Grudge not against one another. It's like James is taking a moment here with the farmer analogy to remind all of us that during the time of waiting for harvest, the farmer is not begrudging anyone. If that makes sense, good, but if not, listen to the words worthy. He maybe explains it better. He says, one of the usual marks of farmers is the willingness to help one another. Nobody on the farm has time or energy for disputes with the neighbor. James must have had this in mind when he added, do not grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged. But then he says something that just leaps off the page at me. Impatience with God often leads to impatience with God's people. That's a good point. Let me say that again. Impatience with God often leads to impatience with God's people. And this is a sin we must avoid. If we start using the sickles on each other, we will miss the harvest. I like the way Worsby words all that to make it maybe connect for us ultimately with this first illustration of the farmer. A lot of things are said about the farmer, but maybe the very end of his, message, his, his comment is of one maybe we need to take to heart. That the patience with God, you ever been impatient with God? Impatience with God often leads to impatience with God's people. As a sin we must avoid. If we start using the sickles on each other, we will miss the harvest. His point again is this. Be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. His first illustration, example, to be able to have patience and mimic the patience of the farmer. But he also then uses the prophets. Verse 10. As an example of suffering patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. Notice here, James chooses not to disclose any certain prophet. But most likely, his audience is fully aware, as perhaps you are, that prophets with the Old Testament exercised much patience in their particular day and their ministry. And not only did they exercise patience, many of the prophets, many of them had to endure great trials and suffering not only at the hands of unbelievers, but also at the hands of people who profess to be believers. I mean, Jeremiah, for example, was arrested as a traitor and even thrown into an abandoned well to die. 
Daniel, throughout all of our series of Daniel, we should recognize many hardships. Many times he exercised patience through himself and his three friends. And then even Elijah. One of my favorite prophets in the Bible, Elijah. He announced to wicked king Ahab that there would be drought for three and a half years. And even in three and a half years, Elijah himself had to suffer in the drought. Even been fed by ravens. So there's a lot in the Old Testament pertaining to prophets in which the great illustrations of exercising patience. So he uses the prophets then as an example also besides the farmer to let us know that they too, you can follow them in exercising patience because they had their suffering, but yet they were patient. But of all the illustrations that maybe James uses in the fifth chapter for us to exercise and have patience, in our lives as Christians and believers, Job is maybe the best example given in verse 11. The illustration of Job actually brings a lot of James' entire letter into consideration. We didn't read the entire letter, didn't have any time for that. But when you take a moment to read the entire letter, there becomes much to reflect upon. I mean, James has a lot of great material. And he speaks to the reader for many occasions for things that is happening to our lives. We, I mean, he talks about trials and temptations and tests of our faith. It happens to all of us. He, he addresses that early in his letter. He, he also tells us in his letter to seek heavenly wisdom versus the earthly wisdom. And he talks about the importance of having humility. All these things and more are discussed in the letter that James provides. And it all culminates then, if you will, it's an illustration of Job. Not just with patience, but everything encompassing within the letter. And the study and the experience of Job is important for us to, be, to remember that Job, if you know the situation about Job, you also know that Job did not know what was going on behind the scenes with God and Satan. We, we get the benefit of reading the book of Job and knowing there's an interaction. But Job himself didn't know this. He did not know what was going on behind the scenes. Now, admittedly, the book of Job is a rather long book. And the chapters are filled with speeches that, through the Western mind, to our minds, well, they seem long and tedious. But in the first three chapters of Job, you find his great distress. I mean, he, he loses his wealth. He loses his family, except for his wife, right? I mean, he loses all his children. He keeps his wife. She's still there with him. But, you know, she's not much help. In verses 4, I mean, chapters 4 through 31, Revealed Job's defense he had when his friends came by and accused him of all these different things of why he's going through such a hard time and enduring these things. And in chapters 40, 38 through 42, you find then Job's deliverance. I mean, first he humbles, God has to humble Job. And then he honors Job by giving him ultimately at the very end twice as much as he had before, but only one wife. That's all a person ever needs. He gave him one wife and she didn't help him at all. He gets one wife, but twice everything else. Because he only needs one wife. Come on, he only needs one wife. Somebody give me an amen. All right, you're back with me now. All right. So through Job's circumstances, it is difficult to find a greater example of patience and suffering than everything that happened to Job. I mean, it surely seems, if you read the letter, if you know about Job's situation, you surely know that fate was against him, or so it seemed. I mean, he lost his health. I mean, he lost his wealth. He lost his children. 
I'm talking about his wife. I mean, chapter 2, verse 9, his wife was no help when she said, Job, curse God and die. It's like she wanted to get rid of the dude, right? I don't understand that. She didn't help him at all. His friends were against him, and they accused him then of all the things he was suffering because of, of the way that he deserved, because of the way he was living, so-called. It seemed like everybody was against him, perhaps even God. So when Job cried out for answers, at first there was no reply from heaven. He's enduring more than any of us may ever endure in life. I know many of us have lost very special people close to us. Many of us have been through financial hardship. Many of us can relate a little bit to what Job's going through, but not to the extent of what Job had and lost. So he's enduring all these different things, and he's looking for answers, and he doesn't get them for a tremendous long time. Because it seemed as he kept looking for answers, he got no reply from heaven for quite some time. But yet, notice how Job endured. In the book of Job, you may know that Satan predicted Job would, that he would get impatient with God and abandon his faith. But that never happened. Satan just tried his best. For Job to have all these different things to happen, to grow impatient with God, and to curse God and abandon his faith. But it never happened. Well, yeah, it's true that Job did question God, but Job did not forsake his faith in God. In Job 13, 15, Job says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. He will argue my ways to his face. I mean, Job, if you will, it's just an excellent example of patience. Have you ever truly in your mind ever considered how you truly would react? If you had to go through all the things that Job was going through, I know we go through a lot. If you actually had to go through all the things that Job was suffering and going through, would you remain faithful and patient? Or would you let the enemy continue to attack you and say, God does not love you, or you would not be suffering through these things? Would you grow impatient with God and abandon your faith? I think a lot of people do. So Job is a great example for us of how he endured all the suffering and did not grow impatient with God and remained patient through it all. I mean, I pray that none of us will ever go through the things ultimately that Job endured. It's an interesting question of how we will react if we find ourselves in Job's situation. Because Job is a, just an incredible example of how to react when the whole world is against you. It's a great example of how to react when the world is against you. But, but it also tells us how to act when these things begin to happen in life, like that financial step back we referred to, or your health begins to deteriorate, or you do experience the loss of a loved one. It tells us that we still must be patient. Job is the greatest example of patient endurance under excruciating suffering. He refused to give in to revenge and demonstrated that his real faith they could have patience, genuine patience, by exercising and keeping this faith. And in the same way, for you and me and for everybody you know, those who patiently endure hardships, 
We can rely on God's promise of ultimate reward and blessing. I mean, James' point through this example is that we also must be like Job to endure hardships and heartaches. We said that was one of the points of the application of the entire passage. We must endure hardships and heartaches until Jesus returns. Look, when Jesus returns, you're not going to have any more hardship and heartache. That's going to be glory hallelujah, right? But until then, we're going to have some hardships. We're going to have some heartaches. And we know also then return to Christ is inevitable. It's going to happen. We know it's the truth. Now, I mean, the world may mock you and make fun of you for your belief of your faith to know that Jesus will return because they, they have doubt. So there are mockers. But you must remain true to what you know the Bible tells us, to God's word. To be patient to know the Lord will return. In 23 of the 27 New Testament books, the mention of Christ's return is repetitious. It's been counted. There's at least 34 different passages in the book of Revelation alone. Some even count it even as high as 44 or more. And, and maybe it's there so much we lose count because of the frequent mention of the glorious return of Christ. But as Christians, as believers, we know his return is promised. And until then, all James is saying is to be patient. And be patient through exercising your faith every day of life. Yes, life happens. Things get difficult. There are hardships. There are heartaches. But we must be faithful. Be faithful to exercise patience. So are you exercising patience? There's times I'm not. There's times I wish I could be so much better than patient. But I understand that we must have patience in our life. If people are watching you, they may be watching you more than you even know. They may know you come to church. They may know you're Christian, you're a believer. So because of that, you're being held to a higher standard. And when you grow quickly impatient, angry, and frustrated, they're noticing that. And they're probably judging you at the same time. But now we learn that in the midst of everything that happens, there's going to be the hardship, there's going to be the difficulty, there's going to be the challenge. We must remain faithful and must continue to have patience. That's the message James is telling us. And one more thing before we end. Mentioned earlier that it's been said we should never or not pray for patience. Simply many people avoid praying for patience because they fear it might bring more of the trials that the Bible says leads to patience. Paul stated in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Yeah, I didn't say patience. King James again, the tribulation worked of patience. So you could say, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces patience. So if patience comes from suffering and tribulation, then praying for patience possibly means you have an increase in tribulations, difficulties, and so forth. Or so said by some. If you pray for patience, it might mean you have more difficulties coming forward to grant you that patience. That's why people say not to pray for patience. But James now, if you consider his word, he just simply narrows it down, maybe makes it more simple. And he instructs this. Be patient and establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. To wait, to be patient, 
for the Lord is indeed a desirable trait. It's a virtue. And we can exercise patience in all things by exercising our faith and knowing the coming of the Lord is near. Hey, Father, Lord, we thank you.